Hey, I'm Steve Holland. Thanks for listening. This episode is supported by the people who can get you up and running with your own podcast. They are the podcast host with free courses, paid courses and technical assistance too. Check out the link at beingfreelance.com. Right now, though, let's find out what it's like being freelance for illustrator Sarah McIntyre. It's only the past few years I've managed to really earn enough to live on. And I think it's the not knowing a lot of the time. You might pitch a book and then you have to wait six months before they get back to you or you sign a contract, but then the book doesn't come out for four years. You can never budget because you never know what's exactly you're going to earn each year. We're all saying on Twitter how we hated working alone and we were sort of going a bit mad, like just being alone all the time. And we kind of came up with the idea on Twitter. Oh, we should get a studio. It's so much better. It's just being good, being able to get up, go somewhere else, do your work, come home. Yeah, so Sarah, mainly known for her picture book illustrations, and we'll get chatting about that in a moment. But let me just say, this is the 60th episode of this podcast. And uh, genuinely just want to say a huge thank you for listening and sharing and reviewing. Thank you so much. Check out all the guests at beingfreelance.com. Subscribe on your favourite podcast catcher of choice. And remember, whatever job the guest does, it's not about the job description. It's about the actual being freelance. So there's 60 there. Go give them a try. Right, enough waffle. Let's get on with it. Chat to this week's guest, freelance illustrator Sarah McIntyre. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Steve. Hello. Um, So how about we get started chatting about how you got started being freelance? Well, let's see. I kind of came about it a little bit roundabout way because I, I always sort of loved illustration, but I never thought I could make a living at it. I always thought it would be too hard to, to make money. So so I went. I did uh, Russian lit as my degree. I thought maybe I'll do something in, in sort of literature or journalism. And I worked for a bit at the Moscow Times newspaper as a copy editor, oh, wow. which was really good practice, actually, because I got to write headlines and captions. And it was sort of pre-blogging training, really. Yeah. And um, I worked. At, I ran an art gallery with some friends uh, for six years in, in southeast London. And that was good training. And I thought, ooh, fine art. But then fine art was very much theory-based. And it was you had to know all this theory. And a lot of it, like minimalism, was really popular at the time. And I think... I'm like the opposite. I'm, I'm a maximalist. I like color and I like to look at lots of stuff. And so I was desperately uncool. But eventually I did some work for just kind of freelance little illustration work that wasn't very good. But, you know, I did it. And then I finally went to art college and did a master's degree as a mature student. Oh. And, um, and then, yeah, my first big book deal here in the UK was with David Fickling. And he signed me up to do comics and a picture book, which was really exciting. Wow. So after art college, mm-hmm. did you go straight into getting that book deal? Pretty much. Actually, I, I got the book deal before I finished art college. It was really nice. Wow. And was that simply like sending out examples of your work to loads of different agents? Or how did that come about? No, it was, it was a bit strange. I'd actually... I had a friend, um, Ellen Lindner, who was at my art college, and she got me onto LiveJournal, which is a blog, a really popular blog at the time. It's a bit uncool now. Lots of Russians use it, but um, <laughs> but I still use it because I love it. Um, and it had a real comics community, and I thought, oh, comics. I didn't know you can make comics about serious things or about like anything but humor comics. And uh, I suddenly I twigged that this was interesting, and I started watching how they drew, and we kind of they became my artistic community, and. I eventually met up with some comics group and I didn't know anything about them. And I was, I think I went to some group and it was all guys, like there wasn't even a woman in the room. And there was this guy named Paul Gravette there who turned out to be the most like 
plugged in person about comics I could have possibly met. And he said, oh, you like children's books and you're doing comics. Why don't you talk to David Fickling? Because he's starting up this new magazine called the DFC, which people may know as the Phoenix comic now. But I went into the office to do comics and he's like, can you do comics? And I was kind of crossing my fingers behind my back because I had no idea if I could do comics. (laughs) (laughs) But I sort of thought, well, they can't be that different than picture books. So, um, So, yes, and he signed me up to do a picture book at the same time. So really it was the comics connection. And just networking, I guess you would say. Well, that's Meaning. the thing, isn't it? You actually put yourself out there and went and met people. Yeah, it was a bit scary. <laughs> wow. So so what year was that? When, when was that? When- I think that would have been 2005 or six, because I graduated in 2007. So. And so from that, have you just been steadily creating like picture books or comics or whatever it might be since? Yeah, it was really useful. I got, actually, I got an agent the same time I got my first picture book because the writer of the picture book is Giles Andre. It was a book called Morris the Mankiest Monster. And um, <laughs> his agent sort of saw me and she likes to, she likes to do books where she um, reps both the illustrator and the writer. So she kind of looked at my work and said, hmm, would you like an, an agent? And I was like, and I was actually quite nervous at the time because I'd had a lot of sort of contract difficulties and things and I wasn't sure what to do and and then I started researching her and talking to all her clients like well at least five of her clients and they're like she's the best in the business you couldn't get better than Rosemary so I I was like I learned that actually the best agent in the business had approached me (laughs) it was amazing so that that was a bit of luck but that came through the initial you know finding the contact that I wouldn't have done if I hadn't gone to the comics meeting yeah it's all linked so really so that is kind of where we're at now right so all those years later how many books might you work on a year or uh i tend to do well i was doing um two picture books a year but then when i thought that was about what i could handle then i um made friends with philip reeve who's a writer and he said why don't we do chapter books together and i was like i don't have time (laughs) but then my agent was like you're crazy why wouldn't you you know you need to you need to work with this guy you know it might not happen in in like five years from now and i was like yeah this is really Actually, this is really what I want to do. So I took on one more book than I thought I could actually manage. But it's actually been the best thing for my business, really. So, And I love, I love working with Philip. Awesome. Yeah, so you guys have collaborated lots. Yeah, since. we've done just finished our fourth book. So, and they're, they're, they're a bit longer. They're, they're heavily illustrated. Like There's pictures on each spread, but, um, but there's a lot more words. It's about 200 pages long. So it's for slightly older readers than the picture books I usually do. And that's when you, you guys work together on the story... First yeah, before, don't you? Yeah, we sort of brainstormed. Our first one was Oliver and the Sea Wigs. And we kind of talked about, um, he wanted to do some sort of sea story about maybe a dog that had washed up somewhere. Or wasn't sure. And then I was like, oh, but we should have mermaids in it. And then I was actually at this meeting of the Children's Writers and Illustrators Group, which is the acronym is Seawig. And I really hate acronyms. And so I was sitting there thinking, well, what if I could, if Seawig was a thing, what would it be in this meeting? And I started drawing it. And then I, t- I told Philip and he's like, that's it. That's what we need for our story. So Oliver and the Seawigs is based on a boring meeting, basically. <laughs> that's great. Uh, and, and then you've also written your own books as well. Yeah, I do. I do. um, I did one called Vern and Lettuce. That was my first one. It was actually a collection of the strips I was doing for the comic. And I did another one called um, There's a Shark in the Bath. And I think that's been the most successful library so far. And another one called Dinosaur Police, which is just out recently. And I also co-wrote one and co-illustrated one with David O'Connell called Jampires. And really, we did. We both wrote it and we both illustrated it, which is really different. I think it's not the usual process the usual way and and so and so do you still do comics 
you still do the comic in was it it goes out in like a kids newspaper sort of thing doesn't it yeah i mean i wanted to do the phoenix because it's just brilliant but it takes me too long i can't fit it all in so i'm i'm doing a about six times a year i do a comic called shark and unicorn for the funday times in the sunday times that's quite nice so i do i do it quite quickly it's 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 a fun little gig that's that's not so how I mean, obviously, so you've got an agent, you've got this kind of cycle of books going round and round and round. So, do you still market yourself? Yeah, I mean, you do. It's it's a different way. I mean, when I f- first started, it was more kind of thinking of mailers or you know flyers or how to going to setting up at comics fairs. But I think recently, it's been a lot more appearing at literary festivals and doing school visits. So those are probably the things. And also, I tweet and do a blog. Yeah, I know it's it's kind of hard because you don't people don't want a hard sell. They don't want you to be like, "Hey, everyone, buy my book!" all the time. So, it's it's not really you don't you can't really do that. It has to be more sort of just getting stuck into the community, really. And if you do enough and you know inspire kids, eventually, you know, hopefully you can make a living at what you do. <laughs> yeah, so you actually have to go out there and put on these, I don't know, almost like shows. Yeah, that's what they never tell you at art college. It's like. You sort of think you're going to sit in a room and draw, and what actually you're thrust out on the stage in front of like 400 kids who are like seven years old and said, you know, talk about your book for an hour, and you're like, oh, actually, <laughs> they don't want to hear it? me talk about my book for an hour. Well, no, you basically you have to think about how to entertain them. So all the stagecraft and acting and dressing up that I never thought I was going to do, I end up doing quite a lot. And Philip Reeve, it's been really good working with him because he's got a bit of a theatrical, like he does the village panto, or used to do the village panto and stuff, and he's an acting in Cambridge. And so he can kind of um, like give me some tips on on sketches and things. But I, I, do, I do big costumes because like if you walk on looking like somebody's mum, they just sort of, you have to earn their trust with kids. But if you go on looking inc- completely mad or bizarre or like Lady Gaga or something, <laughs> instantly you've got their attention. So I will bear that in mind next time I have to do a thing at school. Lady it's Gaga. <laughs> yes. I, I have, there's another guy, Steve Hartley. He's, he's got the biggest bogey in the world and he inflates it every time he does a school gig. And it is, it's enormous. <laughs> and the biggest pair of pants in the world. <laughs> so uh, stuff like that. <laughs> how have you found like the, the business side then? Because you, um, me- you mentioned contract kind of trouble at first. Yeah, it was tricky. When I didn't have an agent, it was like I had to be suspicious of everything because like, they never give you a good contract to start. So if you have an agent, they can take care of all the nasty stuff. Which is really funny because the first time I had lunch with my agent, my editor, I thought we were going to talk about contracts. But I started I started just saying, well, what about... And they, they all sort of looked at me like I'd farted or something, like, don't talk about that! Because apparently when they're together socially, they don't talk because they're friends. But then they get on email and they just kick the hell out of each other <laughs> so so yeah they do all the bad stuff and I, I can just be like oh that's great just talk to my agent even if you don't want to do something you can be like I'm sure that'll be fine but could you just talk to my agent first that's nice. it's like a little buffer a little exactly. kind of you can keep smiling and it looks like it's your agent's fault exactly and then you said you meant you um so you still blog and you so how often would you say you blog I used to blog every day, like religiously, because um, I, I, when I first started out, I did a kind of, dis- it was almost like a discipline where I put a picture up, even if it was bad, just to, to make myself do it. And I think lately I've just been so busy, I haven't, I haven't managed to do it every day. But um, I kind of want to get back to that a little bit, because you get, you get so busy and then you're almost afraid to post pictures of yourself doing something that's not commissioned work, because you think people will say, oh, she's not busy, because obviously, because she's posting fun pictures and it's like well 
no, that's part of my development. I have to do that. So I, you know, I don't want to just have to look busy all the time. I need to, you know, relax, go to the park, draw a tree, even if that means, you know, I might be a bit, a bit late on my book. But you can't be late on your book, so it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> so do do you have to force yourself to take that time out to keep growing? Yeah, as a... it's hard. I don't do it as much as I used to, and I really want to get back into it more. I need to, yeah, just spend weekends maybe going doing a drawing every day. And how about the way you use Twitter? Well, actually, Twitter's quite good for that because it encourages me to do stuff like that. Because if I just retweet other people's stuff or post dumb pictures, like it gets boring. So I kind of, it almost forces, it makes me want to do a picture to have something to show. So like I set up a virtual studio called the Studio Tea Break. It's at Studio Tea Break. And it's just a chance for people who want to draw something but can't quite think what to draw maybe. And I put up a shape every day and we all, you know, can turn the shape into a picture. And that's quite fun because it's, like, you know, if I don't know what to draw, it's an instant thing. And on Thursdays, we started doing something called the portrait challenge, hashtag portrait challenge, where we, I'll sort of pick a famous portrait and we'll all do interpretations of it. And it's actually really interesting because a lot of parents, they say to kids, oh, don't copy artwork. You know, you need to come up with your own stuff. But actually, it's really, really useful to copy art because then you learn how it's done. And the more art you copy, like the more styles you learn and eventually they start to blend and then you have something completely new. So, so I really like seeing other people's portrait challenge art. It's really exciting. And then I have something to draw that I can do quite quickly or spend more time on it if I want to. Nice. Okay. Well, we'll put links at uh, beingfreelance.com to, to that if uh, people want to go and have a virtual tea break. Yeah. With, and it's not, it's not even, it's not even just um, illustrators. It's like we have, um, I think there's an astrophysicist who does it. There's like, you know, people, mums, kids, everyone, you know, there's all sorts of people that jump in and do it. Nice. Uh, as well as, so it's nice because then the people who aren't professionals get to hang out with the professionals and like there's not that kind of critique of like oh you know it has to be perfect it's just people experimenting having fun whereabouts do you work like do you work from home no i, I work in an old police station and <laughs> it's we have jail cells and everything it's really cool <laughs> seriously yeah 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 it's great because if like somebody doesn't pay us we can just like open the cell door and make <laughs> it's got wickets and everything you can drop them with a big clang it's amazing so how did that come about it was a Twitter thing, actually. Um, there was a fan of the DFC comic that I was doing, and a bunch of us, Vivian Schwartz, Gary Northfield, and I were all saying on Twitter how we hated working alone, and we were sort of going a bit mad, like, just being alone all the time. And we kind of came up with the idea on Twitter in tweets that we, oh, we should get a studio. And then somebody from the DFC... Um, the fan piped up and just said, I have a friend who's an architect who's got a studio, and it turned out to be walking distance from my house. So we went down to the studio... And like got it instantly, which was incredible because right now I'm trying to, our lease is running out next year and I'm trying to find a new space and we are looking everywhere and it's so hard finding a studio in London that's not like a thousand pounds a month. So yeah, we're struggling now. But at the time it was like, it was almost like handed to us on a plate. It was incredible. And how did you find out the, like, the difference of like, working from home to, to working oh, with... Oh, totally. It's so much better. It's just being good being able to get up, go somewhere else, do your work, come home. And also I'd have um, neighbours that would just assume that I was, especially one old lady, <laughs> she, was, she was convinced I didn't work. So she would just come and like, pester me and she was, she was selectively deaf. So if I didn't like, hear her, she would just yell louder or, or if she, she couldn't hear me and she would just yell at me and tell me to do things. And it was awful and I just... I couldn't bear it. I was like trying not to answer the door and she just hammer on it more. And Oh my God. Oh my gosh, it was awful. So, and it was also people would ring me up and say, oh, I have a message. Could you give it to your husband? And I'd be like, um, well, 
yeah, he's, you could just ring him at work. And they're like, oh, we can't ring him at work. And I'm like, well, you're ringing me at work. <laughs> so just nobody thought I had a real job. Yeah. So now you go to work. And, and then do you like, I know, do you talk shop? As in like, do, do you like kind of use that as some kind of, um, I don't know, bouncing ideas? Off, oh, or is definitely. It, is it just talking about what was on telly and what you did at weekend? I don't know. Well, you get that too, but yeah, a lot of time you'll be doing sort of a rough and you just can't think like what you're going to draw. You th- like I couldn't draw a dinosaur once. I just could not get the T-Rex looking right. And so I just handed a post-it note to Gary and said, could you draw me a T-Rex? And he just did like a two-second doodle and it was perfect. And it was like all of a sudden I had a character. I, I developed it into my own kind of style and I just put it in the book and it's you can still see remnants of Gary in it. Like it's got a big mouth that goes all the way back to the, the back of its neck. Um, so it is a very Gary T-Rex, but like it's just stuff like that. And I would help him like for one he was behind in his comic and he needed so I did all the coloring real quick um, and then he just you know did put his magic on at the end but you know it's it's sometimes you just get like a deadline and you have to you just need help and we, we can all sort of pitch in so you've managed to separate like work from home mm-hmm. do you manage to actually manage your time in other like do you do you like get to say right I'm going on holiday or whatever it might be you know like do you work at the weekends like how how good are you at separating that out I used to be better but the problem is a lot of the book festivals are on the weekends because that's when kids are in school so I end up traveling a lot on the weekends so I'm doing like it's fun work sometimes because you know you travel to say Cheltenham or um, Ireland or something and it's good but then it's also taking up your whole weekend so it's it's kind of a trade off. It's yeah. I, I don't have many like full weekends these days. Okay, well, if you're tired, take a breather for a sec. While I mentioned that this episode of Being Freelance is supported by the fine folk at the Podcast Host. They have all the know-how of the craft of podcasting to share with you. So, if you're looking to start your own or maybe you've already got one and you want to take it to the next level, check out their resources, courses, mastermind groups, technical help and more and I've finally pulled my finger out, you'll be glad to hear, and got you a discount code to use. So use the code FREELANCE for money off. I think it's about 10%. Not quite sure. Should have checked. That's FREELANCE. Easy enough to remember, though. Right. Thanks to the podcast host. Follow the link at beingfreelance.com. Back to you, though, Sarah. And I want to talk about, well, obviously you're doing really well at what you're doing. Oh, thank you. (laughs) But you're sticking up for illustrators. Like You have a little mission that's kind of taken off. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's basically, it, it came about because, um, I've, I've got my husband, Stuart, who's been helping me all along. And it was about 10 years before I earned enough to, that I could, thought I could actually live on this. Well, badly, but I could live on it in London. And, um, I just thought, how are people doing this when they're single or like, you know, they, I, you know, I come from a pretty, you know, I went to a good university in America and, you know, I've got ties, you know, not, not big ones, but you know, I've, I've, what if you're coming, you have very, you know, you haven't gone to university, you're on your own, your parents are dead, you have no money, like, how are you supposed to get into this job? So I kind of thought it was just really unfair. And I was just struck by that. And I sort of thought, if I can make, you know, in the business, I need to give something back so that other people can also get a foot in the door. Um, and also, a lot of, you know, more diversity, because it's, it's very sort of very white publishing. And it'd be nice to get more, you know, black people, Asian people, just other voices in the mix. So we'd get more interesting books. So how did you go about that? Well, um, it first started out, it's just I was noticing when people are writing book reviews and doing awards lists that they wouldn't list the illustrator. And if it was a picture book, you're like, 
guys, guys, that that illustrator has worked incredibly hard on that book. And the pictures are telling three quarters of the story, possibly. Not to mention them. You know, to just say Julia Donaldson's Gruffalo is just insane. Or they'd even put a picture of the artwork and say Julia Donaldson. And you'd be like, no, that was actually Scheffler, actually. And just... I thought it's really strange that you get these writers being household names, but the only illustrator people can can remember is Quentin Blake. And it's like, you know, that's their one token illustrator that they can say, oh, yeah, I know about illustration because Quentin Blake. (laughs) It's like, no, 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 there's other illustrators out there. And so um, it was just kind of trying to make people aware that books are created by two people and they're both self-employed freelance people. So like not to credit an illustrator is to say, we don't want you to build your career. And that's not fair. You know, an author would, ne- a writer would never let you publish a book without their name on the cover. But like Mariah Carey just had a picture book come out where it was just her name on the cover. And you think, wait a minute, you didn't draw those pictures. You're actually, it's actually a lie. <laughs> like, and it's not only is it a lie, but it's damaging that illustrator's career by not giving them publicity. It wouldn't even have to be as big as letters. You know, it could be small letters, but just enough so when kids are reading the book, you know, the parent can say, okay, Mariah Carey wrote the words and... Look at this illustrator. This is, you know, um, they did the pictures. So it'd be, so that's the kind of thing that you just need. So I started a campaign um, on Twitter. Twitter is a really good thing because um, publishers are on Twitter and publicists, they love Twitter for some reason. <laughs> and um, I started, I call, we call it Pictures Mean Business. James Mayhew and I came up with that, that title, Pictures Mean Business. And it was, we thought this, like Corky Paul was saying, he's been trying to campaign this for like 20 years and it always fails. And the reason I think it always fails is that it's never done from a business angle. It's always done from, you know, we love illustrators. We want to see more illustration. And when, when people are in a boardroom or making marketing decisions, that, that love just doesn't come to the front, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> they don't remember. So we had to make a case for the business angle saying, publishers, if you credit illustrators, you'll actually get more business and it'll help you to earn more money. And we can actually make a really good case for this because, for one, it, it, like, it makes them more discoverable. It makes the books more discoverable. So if, say, the illustrator wins an award, people will say, oh, I want some books by that illustrator. And if they type in the illustrator's name and those, that publisher's books don't come up, they've just lost a sale. So discoverability in metadata. Mm. I'm learning all about metadata. I thought, I thought data was so boring. And it's not. Oh, my gosh. It's so important <laughs> to what we do. Um, it's going to make or break us. And the other thing is, um, you know, you get two people publicizing a book. It's, it's better than one because people love to watch illustrators like draw on stage. You know, it's really it's a great way of selling a book. And also the Internet is so image-based. Mm. Like you, if, if you tweet something and there's a picture on it, it's so much more likely to be retweeted. So illustrators are actually really well made for the modern age, um, and we, and people need our pictures, and to take them and not credit us for them is is criminal. Basically, you know they need to. There's, there's this weird thing where writers or publicists will say, "Get ready for it. We're going to reveal the cover art for this new book coming up. Get ready for the artwork, and here's the artwork." And then everyone will say, "Oh, that's wonderful, writer. You did great." And they'll be like, "Thank you, thank you." And you're like, um. Hello, that was artwork. You didn't draw that. Couldn't, I mean, sometimes they'll really just say, and like the tweet will be, here's my cover art. And they have like 90 letters still left that they could have used to put that illustrator's name in. And you're just like, why are you doing this? So I'm, I'm trying not to be like name and shame because I started out that way. And it's just people get very defensive. And yeah. it does actually work, but then you make a lot of enemies. Um, 
And so I'm trying to be a bit more subtle and like figure out, I think have, people knew that I could name and shame and other people started doing it. And then I kind of pulled back a bit and started talking to people privately and just saying, listen, come on, you need to do this. But I think knowing that you could come out and just go, ah, ah, <laughs> it makes people a little bit like listen more than they did before. I think Twitter is good that way because people have a sort of natural sense of justice. And when they see illustrators being slighted, um, I mean, people, people love illustrators, you know, they don't, they don't really care about the business side of things, but they don't want to see their illustrators like die of starvation. <laughs> yeah. I lo- and, and, and how are you finding it's taking effect? I think so. Yeah. A lot of um, publishers, Nosy Crow, um, a publisher called Nosy Crow, Kate Wilson jumped on it straight away. And she was like, I totally support you, which was awesome. And she started running an illustrator salon. But we saw a lot of books that were um, fiction books, which is kind of a word for books that have um, not so many pictures, but at least a couple per chapter. Um, and they're often written by celebrities. And a lot of those didn't have the illustrator on the front. And I think they've, they've started adding some of those now. And you get the illustrator's name in smaller type, of course, but, but on the front cover. And I've seen a, f- a little bit more of that, which is so encouraging. Because you know these people. Some of them you speak to, and they're like almost on the verge of breakdown sometimes. They're just saying, I work so hard. You know, I'm working 17 hours a day, and I just can't seem to, you know, make enough money. And you're thinking, well, nobody knows who you are. Like... You know, they're not inviting you to do these better paid gigs because they've never heard your name and they just invite a celebrity writer. Whereas if they jo- come as a team, then the, the celebrity can pull up the illustrator and so they can both be on television. And it just makes it more of a household name, you know. Oh, yeah. there's, you know, there's this illustrator. And it's, it's, yeah, it's making a difference, I think. And the awards listings, they're much better about if, an, if a book's up for an award, mention the writer and the illustrator. Yeah, so that's good, good for you because it can easy be easy not to want to like walk, walk the boat. Yeah, well, I think it was, it's kind of a tribute to my publisher and my writer actually because um, Philip Reeve, a lot of people don't want to rock the boat because they're scared they won't get more work. Hmm. And I think my publisher was so supportive, Oxford, um, Oxford University Press and um, my writer, Philip Reeve. They were just like... And like I didn't worry they were just going to dump me because I knew them all well and they're you know they love illustration. Philip actually worked as an illustrator. He was illustrating horrible histories books for a long mm-hmm. time before. He's in some ways he's a better illustrator than I am. <laughs> but <laughs> but <laughs> he's a different illustrator. Right? <laughs> but he's really, but he likes writing better. So but the thing is he gets the whole illustration thing. Yeah. Like he wouldn't he wouldn't forget to credit me. Yeah. So, so I was had a lot more freedom to sort of speak up because I knew I had that safety of people supporting me. So it's a, it's a tribute to them, really. Again, we will put links at beingfreelance.com, though um, I'm sure if you're into illustration, you will have spotted that hashtag around oh, at cool. some point. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, I set up a little sort of website subdivision on my website. It's just picturesmeanbusiness.com, and it kind of talks about all the ways, you know, people can help support illustrators. And some of them are really simple. They don't cost anything. It's just, it's just remembering. Yeah. What would you say have been the biggest challenge, challenges of being, being freelance? Um, biggest challenges is, well, just earning money, I guess. <laughs> it's a hard job to make a living at. It's only um, in the past few years I've managed to really earn enough to live on. And I think it's, it's the not knowing a lot of the time. It's you sort of, you know, you might pitch a book and then you have to wait for six months before they get back to you or you sign a contract, but then the book doesn't come out for four years. And it's, it's that sort of you can never budget because you never know what's exactly you're going to earn each year, and that's that can be quite scary. Um, I think some editors are very bad about getting back to people, especially in the early age stages of the career. 
And so people mm. could spend a year waiting for something. And a lot of people just have to get a second job because they can't, they can't live on it. Yeah. Um, my studio mate, so my studio mate was a nanny for a long time because she just, you know, she's waiting and waiting and it's like, come on, you know, they need, she needs to know <laughs> this is her job. <laughs> yeah. So you really have to be patient and, and believe in it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I tried to sort of, sort of not wait for people because I thought this is ridiculous. I need to, I need to do something. So I went out and um, got stands at comics fairs and tried to hand sell stuff you know i'd actually take a box of author copies and take them to a fair and sell them sometimes it was picture books it wasn't even comics and they were really receptive to that and it was kind of interesting because it taught me like about making you know about the selling of the books and and you know sometimes i'd make photocopied books that would just be like you know i'd actually make it on a photocopier and sell them and those were really popular because people like something that's actually handmade you know from start to finish to the sale and that was a good training for me to learn a bit about the whole process of publishing, really. Yeah. Oh, and the other funny thing was that you'd get people at comics fairs who'd never bought a book for their kid before, because a lot of them have kids, and a lot of them are blokes, and like their wives buy the books for the kids, and they'd sort of come up and be like, oh, you're a comics person. Oh, you do picture books. I, they're for ki- I have a kid. <gasps> I could buy them a book. And you can see, and it's the dawning realization that that's like, that could be something interesting that they could do for their kid. And so they buy a book and they're all excited. And that's the first book they've ever bought for their child. And I was like, oh, you know, we're reach, this is a whole different group. You know, we're not reaching these guys when, when it's a bookshop because it's all kind of cute and nice. And these guys are going to comics festivals. And yeah. You know, it's like, oh, and actually a lot of comics festivals are getting much more child friendly because it used to be they'd maybe have some like, um, I don't know, Star Wars people wandering around or something. But it wouldn't the tables would all be too high for kids to see over and everything (laughs) would be in like plastic wrap that you're not supposed to touch. And and it's changed a lot where they have activities for kids. You know, there's more cosplay. Um, You know, kids kids can actually run their own comic stalls. You can you know, a kid can make 20p comics and sell them. And you, you see kids doing that. There's like eight-year-olds who are self-published. It's just the best thing ever. There's like they're getting on with it and they're not waiting for publishers. They're just doing it. And I think that's that teaches you more than just waiting around. It's it's a really useful thing to do. Just yeah. get on with it. I like that. Just get on with it. That, that might well have to be the title of this episode. <laughs> just get on with it. Yeah. So, so actually, I said be patient and you were like, no, I just went and did it. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. yeah, that waiting that waiting time is it's it's the time you need to be doing stuff. It's not it's not the time you need to be sitting around. Uh, a great point. Although I never want to get stuck behind you at the photocopy machine in the post office. <laughs> Sorry, I've got a book fair this weekend. Oh man, <laughs> just needed one. And how about the the budget like if if getting uh money if, if that was the, the 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 biggest challenge like what's the biggest buzz? Uh I think it's when a kid just like totally goes crazy over your book. It's so fun when they're like, this is my favorite book. And then the parent might tweet a photo of them like sleeping with it at night, <laughs> like oh. a teddy bear. <laughs> it's just like, oh, and it's it's so exciting. And also like when Philip Reeve and I brainstorm about a book and come up with ideas and just like somehow it's just you're like, yes, this is what we want to do. And it's, it's something really magic about that, that throwing ideas around and coming up with something better than either of you would have thought of. That's that's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. So actually, I mean, I, I know it's kind of like part of the industry, but collaboration for you, both in the in the studio that you've got, but with the people you work with, that seems pretty important. Yeah, I mean, when I first started doing picture books, I didn't I didn't meet the people that wrote the books till like way after they were published, and that was okay. But it was just felt a bit cold. Whereas um, 
like working with David O'Connor, working with Philip Reeve, you know, we could actually create something and it was always back and forth and always really exciting. And I like that much better. Now, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself, make two true, one a lie, and let me figure out the lie. What have you got for me? Okay, fact number one. I once wore a six-foot-tall Marie Antoinette-style wig made out of cling film to my Oliver and the Seawigs book launch on a ship. And at one point, the weight of it almost made me fall overboard. <laughs> the, the weight of the wig nearly the made of the you wig. fall off a boat? Yeah. <laughs> it was really heavy. It made big dents on my shoulders where it was resting. Okay. And then number two, um, at a book festival, I was once lowered down to my London stage event by an enormous crane, but everyone saw my knickers for like five minutes. It was really embarrassing. We got some awesome photos there. <laughs> and for, or did you? Is it a lie? Uh, and fact three? Uh, three. For my Cakes in Space launch, we used a weather balloon to send a cupcake and a letter into space. And it landed in Braintree in Essex. And a nice lady <laughs> named Irene read the letter and wrote, wrote back to us to say she got it. Oh, man. Now, each of these, I mean, if people haven't clicked through to your website yet, they will see how flamboyant you can be, especially <laughs> when you're publicising a book. As you say, it gets attention. So each of these could be... I mean, if I was publicising a book about cakes in space, that seems to make sense, putting a, mm. a, weather, but, but a weather balloon... Would mm -hmm. that they don't land? Big in silver, big silver one. Was it an actual weather balloon that goes into space, um, or was yeah. it just a helium balloon <laughs> that you were um, pretending would go into space? It was big, big and silver, and, and silver made a sort of pongy noise when you snapped your fingers on it. <laughs> yeah, because would they? Oh, I don't know. Okay, wig, cling film wig. How heavy would that boat? Uh, okay, I don't think you nearly fell off a boat with a wig. It's true. Oh, man. It's so what true. was the lie? Oh, uh, the lie was the, the space launch, actually. Actually, that was done by a writer named Nick Eschukla. He had a book called Meat Space, and he sent a kebab into space. <laughs> and, and I saw that, and I thought, oh, damn, we should have done that. <laughs> I, was really, I thought that was a really good idea. He sent a kebab into space. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty awesome. There's a video on YouTube somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would it be? Ooh, um... Just keep trying, I think. I think it's a little bit like like when you're going, you know, if you're at a rock concert and you want to get to the front and there's no way you can get through that crowd. And if you just try to bash your way through, everyone's going to push aside, not let you, you know, they're not going to let you through. But if you kind of just dance and keep going forward and like rock forward and just, just weasel your way through, eventually you'll get there to the front. So I think, I think that's what I would say. Just keep trying. Don't give up. Oh, just keep dancing. I love that. Sarah, thank you so much. Do check out beingfreelance.com for links through to everything that Sarah is up to. You might find her as Jabberworks, isn't it? Yeah, mm -hmm. Jabberworks as well. There'll be links to her on Twitter. And if you've got kids, go go buy one of their books, of course, as well. But Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. And all the best being freelance. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. 